Open up your Bibles, if you would please, this morning to Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and I love the Advent season, I love Christmas. Um, this is just my, always my favorite time of the year. Um, but instead of launching into a special Christmas or Advent sermon series this year like we normally do, we're just going to keep preaching through Genesis. We're going to continue our series that we've entitled Foundations. Um, which is a verse-by-verse walk through the book of Genesis. And so today we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22. This this time of the year, as you find in that text here, this this time of the year, the Christmas season, is the time of the year that many parents participate in one of the longest-running bribes in all of human, human history. And what bribe am I talking about? I'm talking about this one. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. Yeah, that's right, a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. This is the longest running bribe in history, is that we hold out presents and say, be good, children. And uh, you're right. I know that some of you guys have participated in that bribe as well. You know, we tell the kids, if you behave, you get stuff, stuff from Santa. If you don't behave, you won't, right? Well, of course... Most kids end up getting the stuff anyway, regardless of how they behave, whether it's naughty or nice. Or as um, one of those um, sappy Hallmark movies recently depicted, um, and I'm sorry, I just, they, they are, uh, that there's actually two sides, there's the naughty and nice list, and you can't just look at the naughty, you've got to flip it over and look at the nice, because it evens out. In other words, according to the Hallmark movie, as long as you have just a little bit more nice than naughty, you're okay. Everything's fine. Just a little bit more on the nice side than on the naughty side, then Santa will remember you. Santa will take care of you. So long as you have more checks in the good, nice list than in the naughty list. And that's sort of the way our world operates, isn't it? Matter of fact, we turn God into a cosmic Santa who has a naughty and a nice list. And so long as we are, have more checks in the nice list than the naughty list, we're okay. And God will remember us. Just as Santa will remember us at Christmas time. But who does God remember? Who does God take account of? Who does God save? Well, as we come to this great biblical account of Noah's Ark, that question is answered for us. Who does God remember? The story of the flood of Noah's Ark is one literary unit that encompasses verse 9 of chapter 6 all the way to chapter 9, verse 19. So it's a big story. It's one literary unit. Now, I'm not going to preach all that today. I'm going to break it down into smaller preaching portions. But in reality, there's there's a very intentional and detailed structure to the whole story Um, As Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, put it together, he structured it in a certain way. And if we see the structure of the whole story, we'll see real quickly what the focus of the story is. And we'll see 
the answer to this question, who does God remember? The whole passage employs an elaborate and rather large chiastic structure. Now, I've, I've explained chiasms before here. The chiastic structure is a literary device often used in ancient literature, uh, probably as a means of helping people remember, memorize the text, but also as a means of zeroing in on the main theme of the text. So I've talked about chiasms before, and if you'll remember, a chiasm is a literary device in which, which words or grammatical uh, constructions or concepts are stated in a particular order, and then they're repeated in reverse order. So maybe you have concept A, concept B, concept C, concept D, and then in reverse order you have kind of a parallel or repetition of concept C, and then a repetition of concept B, and then a repetition of concept A. So what it's doing is it's a structure that looks like this, and it's bringing your attention to what's in the middle right there. We have that in this whole big story here of Noah's Ark. That's the way this is structured. You have this gigantic chiasm. It's probably the biggest in all the Bible. It begins in verse 9 and ends in verse 19 of chapter 9. So chapter 6, verse 9 uh, through 9, 19 begins, well, th this whole story begins with an introduction of Noah and his sons uh, in verses 9 through 10. And then to show you how the chiasm works, at the very end in verses 18 through 19 of chapter 9, it ends with another description of Noah and his sons. Now between these two bookends, there's a series of points that will appear and then later re reappear in reverse order. For example, uh, or, or it's a theme that appears and then reappears. For example, in chapter 6, in, in verses 11 through 12, we see the corruption of all flesh. And then God, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, makes a covenant with all flesh. We see in verses 13 through 22 that God has a resolution to destroy the earth by a flood. Well, that's parallel later by God's resolution to never destroy the earth again by a flood in, in chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. And so the, it goes like this. The whole structure is like this. As a matter of fact, even the numbers in the story are structured that way. So the question is, what's at the center point? As you have these parallel things throughout this text, what's, what's at the center point? The center point is chapter 8, verse 1. Let me just read for you chapter 8. Verse 1, you can flip over it if you want to, but hear that first phrase of that verse is what the center point of the whole story is. But the Lord remembered Noah. But the Lord remembered Noah. That is the center point. That's the highlighted verse, if you will, of the structure of this whole passage. The flood is an account about God's judgment against sin. That is true. Matter of fact, we were laughing at the, at, the, at the Tim Hawkins, have you ever seen the Tim Hawkins skit where he, 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 he thinks it's funny that, that parents put Noah's Ark on, on children's murals in the, in the bedroom? And he says, you know, this is a story about judgment. You know, you're going to paint little people screaming on the rock, going, ah, you know. Well, of course not. Well, he's right. It is a story about judgment against sin. But in the midst of the judgment, the main focus is on God's mercy upon sinners. The main focus of this whole story is that God is remembering his people. He's remembering Noah, and he's bringing salvation to mankind. He's bringing it through one man, the man Noah, and he's also preserving the seed of the woman who will one day bring the Messiah into the story as well. So who is it that God remembers? That's the question which is sort of on my mind. As, as, I, as I'm thinking about that center point of the whole story, my, the question that was driving me as I prepared the sermon was, who is it that God remembers? What kind of person does God remember? Who is it that God saves? That's the question hanging over the text. 
So please stand now as we read the first part of today's text, and we begin to look at the question of that, the, the answer to that question, who is it that the Lord remembers? Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. We stand at Harbin's because we do believe with all our heart that this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. This is not some made-up story. This is history as we read it here. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you and to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Holy Father, help us to see in this text today who it is that you remember, who it is that you save. What, what are the marks of a person who is saved by you, who is remembered by you? What are the marks of a person who has received your grace? So God, I pray that you help us to see that this morning in the life of Noah in this text. Father, I pray that you keep us um, focused on the word, keep my words accurate. Give us all ears to hear, Lord. I pray that you give me a, a voice to speak and give me, a, just give, give me a, the ability right now to even have a voice this morning. And so Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A lot has happened in the first uh, few chapters of Genesis, in this, in this first five, a little bit more than five chapters of Genesis. In our study, in this very first book of the Bible, we've seen the creation of the world, We've seen God's covenant with Adam as his image bearer, his vice regent, created to enjoy and rule over the earth. And we've seen man rebel against God's good design and thereby fall into a state of sin and misery. We've seen the subsequent spread and downward spiral of sin and the descendants of Adam and Eve, splitting humanity into two streams of mankind. And those two streams were already foretold and promised in Genesis 3.15 where God gives us this great promise as he curses the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. So one stream consists of those who continue in rebellion under the headship of Satan. The other are those who walk with God, who put their hope in God, who believe that one day the promised snake crusher will come to deliver them from sin and death. But at this point in the story, as it's been progressing, at this point in the story, it seems that Satan's family, Satan's lineage, is winning. The satanic stream of humanity seems to be roaring, whereas the, the lineage of the woman, the lineage that's going to bring the Messiah, is, seems to be kind of narrowing down to just a, just a trickle. <coughs> the depravity had reached such a point that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we are told of, uh, of such wickedness. And I believe the text also in, in, indicates sort of, sort of a, a sexual violence that there's actually an intermingling of the demonic spirits and human beings. The sinfulness of man was such that a, that a terrible judgment in, was imminent and that God was going to effectively uncreate the world, as Deemer talked about last week. So let's back up just a little bit. I want to remind us of some things from last week. Look at verse 5. Let's read verses 5 through 7 real quick here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention in the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, and, and here's the important aspect that Demer brought out last week. This is now the reverse order of the way things were created. So the Lord said in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. So the very word order there indicates Sort of an uncreation of the world. That's what God is doing. He's sort of uncreating the world here as, he, as he's going to bring this judgment. And we'll see more of this in the text as we go through the study of the flood itself. Genesis really does teach us so much about man's depravity. And it's in the sea of depravity that one man finds grace. Verse 8. And this was from last week. But it's important for us to understand as we go forward this week. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that's quite simply my first point for today. Who is it that God remembers? Number one, the person whom God remembers is a recipient of unmerited grace. Now, you're, it looks like you just have one big point today in your, in your, in your outline. What it is, it's one long sentence, and I'm just going to fill it out progressively. So here's the first part. The person whom God remembers is a recipient of unmerited grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, like every human being who has ever walked the planet, needs God's grace to be saved. Noah had not done anything to earn God's favor. Noah was not saved because he had more check marks in the nice list than in the naughty list. As we'll see, Noah was indeed a good and upright man. But being a good and upright man is not good enough. For all men, including Noah, are born sinners and in rebellion against God not all men are as bad as they can be, and some sinners are nicer than others. But no man can stand before the righteous judge of the universe and say that he has merited his or her own salvation. And that includes Noah. In the text, the story of Noah's ark, as we get to chapter 9, will teach this truth that Noah himself was fallen as well. It'll teach it painfully and deliberately. Moses wants us to see that Noah himself is also a sinner. 
Now, when we read about all this depravity in verses 5 through 6, and then we later will read more about this depravity in verses 11 through 13, we can't just assume that Noah was immune to all of it and somehow in his own strength figured out how to be right with God. That's not how to read this text. We, we must assume that God supernaturally poured out some favor upon Noah that changed him. I read one commentator who put it this way. When you read about a righteous person in the midst of a world like that, you know you are witnessing a miracle of God's mercy toward uh, the undeserving. To put it another way, when you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself, right? When you see a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there by itself. Noah is the turtle on the fence post. The world is depraved all around him. He is part of that humanity, yet here he stands out as a righteous and as a good man. How on earth did that happen? Well, Noah doesn't take any, can't take any credit for it. The way it happened is that God poured out his favor upon Noah. <clears throat> the whole of Scripture makes it very clear that God's mercy, God's grace is undeserved. Ephesians 2.8, you guys know this verse well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, we were off the fence post. We were part of the, that sea of humanity, of human depravity. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it's in the light of verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8, that we then read the next words in verse 9, where we see this. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. The fact that Noah received grace in no way minimizes the fact that he was indeed a righteous and blameless man. For grace produces righteousness in its recipient. And that's my next point. That's the next part of the sentence. The person whom God remembers is the recipient of unmerited grace, which produces a peculiar righteousness. By peculiar, I simply mean distinct, different, something that makes him stand out. Notice that Noah was a righteous man. Blameless what? In his generation, meaning he stood out in that generation among the wicked and depraved people that he lived with. To drive home the point of how different and distinct Noah was, the scriptures compare him to the culture. Verse 9 says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then in verse 10, we have a, a mention of his three sons. But then 11 talks about the rest of the world. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Do you hear a word being repeated there? When you hear words being repeated, you know something's being communicated. It's the word corrupt. What's the key word there? Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Again, man's depravity is on display. There's an exponential corruption in the world. But Noah, Noah stands out. He's different. He's peculiar. 
because he's righteous and he's blameless. That's what God's favor produces in God's people. That's what flows out of grace. Let's take the two New Testament texts that we just read earlier about God's unmerited grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. I want to take those two texts and I want to take each one of them one verse further. So that we can see that in the New Testament we have this teaching. That there are right, there is righteousness, there is goodness that flows out of the, the receiving of God's grace. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And listen to Titus 3, 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So these two tremendous texts in in the New Testament, Ephesians and Titus, that teach us clearly that God's grace is a free gift from God. We in no way can earn it or merit it, and we cannot earn his grace by works, yet these two passages immediately turn and then talk about doing good works. And so go do good works that you've been prepared beforehand to do. Be righteous. Be blameless. Righteousness, blamelessness flows out of a changed heart. (coughs) Grace produces good works. A righteous, a blamelessness that the recipients of grace received is, is a righteousness that makes us stand out from the wicked culture we find ourselves in. As, as the saying goes, we are saved by grace alone, but, but, but not by a grace that is alone. True grace is always accompanied by righteousness. Now, there are two aspects of righteousness. We think about the word righteousness. First of all, we need to understand this is the very first time that Moses, as he's giving us the, the book of Genesis, Inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the first time he uses the word righteous. And that's a loaded word, righteousness, righteousness. What does it mean? Well, it can simply mean the practical way someone lives out their life. Blameless. They're they're living rightly. But it also, as we know from the, the scriptures, it talks about a holiness that we need to have in order to be with God. So there is a positional righteousness before God where our sins are forgiven and we have to have an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. But there's also a practical righteousness whereby a sinner lives a life that reflects or images God. In this text, it's probably talking about Noah's righteousness and blamelessness, talking about the latter, his, his practical righteousness. When, when, when Moses calls Noah righteous and blameless, he's not indicating necessarily uh, Noah's uh, positional righteousness before God, but instead he's referring to the overall pattern of living that was in line with God's will, meaning that Noah was a God-loving man and a God-fearing man. It means that he was a man who trusted in what God said. He trusted in God's word. He believed in God's promises. Therefore, he was a man of faith. And that's my next point. The person whom God remembers is a recipient of unmerited grace, which produces a peculiar righteousness that comes through sure faith in God's promises. That comes through sure faith in God's promises. Notice the last words of, chap- of verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. The last words of that verse say, Noah walked with God. Where have we heard that already before in the book of Genesis? That someone walked with God. Enoch, right? 
Okay? We, he, now we see it again here with Moses. We've seen it before with Enoch, right? In Genesis 5, and 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So the account of Enoch is there and is written um, as it is so that when you get to the account of Noah, you are drawn back. Your mind is drawn back to Enoch to see that the one who walks with God is one who is rescued, one who is taken out of this depraved world, the one who has hope of eternal life. That's Enoch. To say that one walks with God is a way of describing the one who has faith in God, who trusts in God, who believes in God, who finds his hope in God's promises. Enoch's walk with God was the same as faith in God. But don't take my word for it. I think Deemer highlighted this when he preached through this, but Hebrews 11.5 says this, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commanded as having pleased God. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up. You say, wait, 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 no, no, no. In Genesis says he was taken up because he walked with God. So what does that tell us? To walk with God means to have faith in God. That's what it means to walk with God. And so when I see here that Noah walked with God, I see that Noah is a man of great faith. Noah walked with God too, like Enoch. But his faith is not seen by, by his removal from the earth into an immediate fellowship with God. No, his faith is seen in the way he responds to God's word, God's promises, both the negative ones and the positive ones. Look at verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, this is the first promise. It's a negative one. It's an interesting, on an interesting side note, real quick here, when God says, I will destroy them, and that word he uses, destroy, is the very same word. It's just translated different here than in the earlier verses, but it's the word corrupt. In a very real way, we see that the destruction that God is bringing is simply the eventual logical end of mankind's own self-destructive tendencies. It's God always, as we read in Romans 1 and other places in Scripture, gives man over to what he wants. He gives man over to his blind and foolish rebellion and ultimately his own destruction. Later we have more promises from God. So there's the first promise. It's a negative promise that God is going to destroy the earth. Then later in verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth and destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So there's another negative promise. I'm going to do this. And then there's a positive promise, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So Noah, who walks with God, hears these things. Hears what God said. He knows God. He believes God. He puts his faith in what God says. So in Hebrews 11, let's go back to Hebrews 11 real quick. We see more about Noah's faith in chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So in God's promises, Noah hears, believes God's promises, God's warnings, and those propel him to live a life of obedience by constructing the ark. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So let's talk about righteousness again. So before we saw the practical righteousness of Noah that flows out of a person who has received grace, but we also know that Noah, like all who have received God's grace by faith, are also positionally 
righteous. Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, meaning the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, credited to him, to all who have saving faith. So Noah's belief, his sure faith, results in some actions that we'll see here in a minute. But for now, let us see that God's people always live by faith, Romans 1:17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, and now Paul quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteous Noah lives by faith. If we are recipients of God's grace, we too must be people who live by faith. Faith in God's grace. It doesn't take much looking in the Bible to see the connection between the grace of God, the righteousness that God produces, and living by faith. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So, the person whom God remembers is a recipient of unmerited grace, which produces peculiar righteousness that comes through sure faith in God's promises. And finally, resulting in a radical obedience. Similar to the point I made earlier, a recipient of grace exhibits a life of righteousness. So too a person who lives by faith is a person who exhibits radical obedience. And this text leaves no question. Noah's faith, okay, that, that drove him to be obedient gave him a radical obedience, a thorough and radical obedience Sandwiched in between the indicatives, okay, the promises of, of verse 13 and then verses 17 through 18, as we've already read, in verses 14 through 16, we have the imperatives, the commands of God. So here's what God commands Noah. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits, Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower and second and third decks. Now, why do you think the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to give us all that level of detail? You think it was so that Ken Ham could one day build a replica, you know, years later? Well, why all the detail? And by the way, even though God is giving commands to do this, build this, the commands themselves are grace. Without the, the ark being built, Noah's not going to be saved. We always like to try to draw a distinction between, oh, is that grace or is that law? All of God's law for the person who's been saved is gracious. It's good. So we don't need to look at the commands here and say, well, that's not good. It's good. This is grace as well. But why? Now, why all the detail? We have levels of detail here, levels of detail that later are paralleled in the construction of the tabernacle. There's lots of details in the construction of the tabernacle. So why? Why then and why now do we have all this level of detail? Well, I think it's because God wants us to see the level of obedience that he expected from Noah and the level of obedience that Noah actually showed. We have more detail in verse 19, detail regarding the animals. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, so the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. 
Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So all of this detail, all of these specifics. And how does the passage today end in verse 22? Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded. Moses lays out all the details so we can see that, that Noah did all that the Lord commanded. His obedience was thorough. And it was radical as well. Radical because this was being done under a severe trial. It took 120 years to build the ark. That's a lot of perseverance and a lot of hard work. In that time, we were told by the Apostle Peter that Noah preached, meaning that he proclaimed God's promise and God's, he warned people about God's judgment. Surely that did not make him very popular. He wasn't seeker sensitive, I'm sure. He was probably branded a crazy fool. He was probably ridiculed and mocked. And psychologically, most likely, he didn't feel like a very successful preacher. For at the end of the day, only he and his family were saved. That's a lot of unsuccessful preaching over 120 years. At least unsuccessful in the way we define success. If he were a Baptist preacher, he would have been fired long before 120 years, or he would have just quit. Yet Noah continued, he persevered, he obeyed. It was a radical obedience. And building that giant box that we call the ark was no easy task. The measurements meant that the ark was over a football field and a half long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. That's four and a half stories. It had three decks equivalent to over 95,000 square feet of living space or 1.4 cubic uh, feet of space. 1.4 million cubic feet of space. It was capable of supporting 14,000 tons. That's a big box. That's a big task. It probably cost him all the financial resources that he had to build it. That's radical obedience. Oh, and his work crew, it consisted of four men. He and his sons. Noah's obedience was thorough. It was radical. And his complete obedience is a repeated theme in this whole narrative. And we see it again in chapter 7, verse 5, and in verse 9, and verse 16. So friends, true faith is always accompanied by hard work. True faith is always accompanied by hard work. No, again, we are not saved by our good works. But mark my word, you are not saved if your life has no good works. If there is no obedience, there is no saving faith. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith. There's faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Now let me pause right here. We miss this, the Apostle Paul speaking. We make it our aim to please Him. Hebrews eleven six 6 says the only way you can please God is through faith. So this is talking about faith. Okay, without faith it's impossible to please God. So let's continue in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, we like to think of faith. If I'm walking by faith and I'm just trusting in God and it really doesn't matter what I do. But that's not the way the Bible speaks. That's not the way the Apostle Paul speaks. 
The Apostle Paul says, yes, we walk by faith. We live by faith because we're all going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for every little thing we've done. Do you understand that, believer? You understand that you're still going to go before the judgment seat of Christ, but if you are in Christ, then all the things that are on the naughty list will have been put on his shoulders, and all the things you need on the nice list will be credited to you from Christ, and so therefore you will go into heaven. But the fact of the matter is, you will still be judged by your deeds, whether you did good or evil. And so it's not that the Christian life is now a life of laziness, Oh, I've believed in God, I've trusted Him, I've placed my faith in Him, and now I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. The person who has received God's grace by faith has been changed. He now hates sin, and he now has a desire to obey. Let's drive that home with some other texts. Ladies, James chapter 2, verse 14. I say ladies because y'all have been studying it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to, to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith. By my works. How do we know that Noah believed, had faith in God? How do we know? Because he built an ark. That's how we know his faith was real. Friends, that's how you know your faith is real. Is that I've placed my hope and my faith in Christ. I know the promises of God. And now I'm going to live in obedience to what he has said. It's the evidence that the faith is real. And that's what we see in Noah. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? In John 14, 15, you will keep my commandments. There are so many other scriptures we could refer to here. But friends, let's see from the example of Noah that faith is accompanied by obedience. And so we too are called to strive to press on, to work, to obey by faith as a result of grace. I just want to encourage you, friends, don't buy into the cheap grace, the repentance-less Christianity devoid of works that's peddled in so many pulpits today. Run from it. Matter of fact, James 2 calls it satanic. Don't embrace a Christianity that requires nothing of you. No daily cross to carry. No sin to put to death. No fight for holiness. Don't embrace a Christianity that leaves you in your comfort zone. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Listen to this. For as it were in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. There's nothing wrong with eating. 
There's nothing wrong with drinking or marrying. There's nothing wrong with owning and working a field. There's nothing wrong, wrong with grinding wheat. Jesus isn't saying all those things are bad. Those are actually good things, unless they cause you to ignore God. We live in a God-ignoring culture. So don't buy into a Christianity that leaves you in your comfort zone, in a God-ignoring comfort zone. The people of Noah's day ignored God. They had no faith in God. And so too the people of our day. We breathe God-ignoring air. This very season, named after our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is filled with shiny new toys that beg us to ignore God. Jesus made the same, par- same point in this parable in Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 13, but I don't have time to read that today, so I'm just going to refer you to that passage if you want to read it later. And I think it's also the point that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 7 when he's talking about um, living in such a way as if you're focusing on the kingdom and not focusing on the things of the earth. So the person whom God remembers is a recipient of unmerited grace which produces a peculiar righteousness that comes through sure faith in God's promises resulting in a radical obedience. So the question, is that you? Are you the person whom God remembers, whom God saves? Oh, friends, the story of Noah isn't ultimately about Noah. It's about Jesus. Why did God remember Noah? Because he was preserving a remnant of faithful, righteous men, a remnant that would ultimately bring us Jesus, ultimately bring us the one in whom Noah hoped as well. Jesus is the one who purchased God's grace for us. Jesus is the one who gives us his righteousness and produces righteousness in us. Jesus is the one in whom we place all of our faith for all of God's promises because they all find their yes in him. And friends, Jesus is the one who radically obeyed his father by taking on human flesh, coming into our depraved world, living among us yet sinning not, and then taking his own father's wrath upon his own shoulders on the cross. He became obedient even to death on the cross. Jesus is the better Noah. And as we'll see in the upcoming messages, Jesus is also the better ark. So Jesus isn't making a list. He's not checking it twice. Now he does know who's naughty and nice. But what Jesus does is by his own life and death and burial and resurrection, he took our naughty list upon himself. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross and he gave us his perfect righteousness. So we stand before God justified and we grow each day by faith into more and more Christ-likeness. And we see this pattern all the way back in the life of Noah. Oh, friends, if you don't know Jesus this morning, I invite you to come to him. Put your faith in him. For a judgment much greater than the flood that we'll look at in the upcoming messages, a judgment much greater than that is coming. And if you do not heed his call, you will perish. Put your hope, put your faith in him, and you'll be radically transformed, and you will be the person whom God remembers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do a work in each one of our hearts to make our faith evident, to make it real. Father, I pray that, as James calls on us to do, that people will be able to see our faith during this Christmas season by our works. Maybe by the words that come out of our mouth when we talk about Christmas. We talk about stuff. Maybe the way we handle stress that comes during the holiday seasons. 
Maybe the way we interact with family members. Maybe it's how we spend our money, what we invest in during the Christmas season. Giving to others. Whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that people can see our faith by our works. Our faith is not based on our works, but it must be accompanied by it. So God, I pray that you'd help us to be people who have a robust understanding of what true biblical faith looks like. And I pray that you'd help us as we continue to walk through Genesis and we look at the life of Noah, but we look more importantly at what you are pointing to in the story of Noah's Ark and in the flood and all of this. Help us to see Jesus in Genesis. So help it as we continue to go through and we think about Christmas and Advent and all this. There's not a, there's not a single passage in Scripture, Father, that we cannot preach during Advent season because it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. So help us to keep our eyes on Christ during this Christmas season and also as we continue in this sermon series. And Lord, I pray there be any in here who don't know Jesus, who've never put their hope and faith in him, Lord, that you stir up their hearts, even right now, to turn to him, to turn to the only one who can truly save them, who can take them out of the sea of depravity and put them as that proverbial turtle on the fence post. So God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.